Holy Father, we could sing of your love forever. Why not? When you know you have been loved that much, can't help but sing. Let today's teaching reinforce that truth beyond the shadow of a doubt. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you know who this man is? Recognize him? You don't? That's Warren Buffett. Have you ever heard of Warren Buffett? Have you? Forbes magazine last month came out with a report on Warren Buffett. I've got it from Forbes.com. Let me just read to you about that man. Age, 77. Fortune, self-made. Source, Berkshire Hathaway. Country of citizenship, United States. Residence, Omaha, Nebraska, United States, North America. Industry, investments, marital status, widowed. Remarried, three children, education, University of Nebraska-Lincoln, Bachelor of Arts in Science, Columbia University, Master of Science. Your education stands you in good stead. Now, America's most beloved investor is now the world's richest man. Soared past friend and bridge partner Bill Gates as shares of of Berkshire Hathaway climbed 25% since the middle of last July. Son of Nebraska politician, he delivered newspapers as a boy, filed his first tax return at the age of 13, claiming $35 deduction for bicycle. You go. Now you know why he is what he is. All right, here, let me read one more line. Took over textile firm Berkshire, Berkshire Hathaway, 1965. Today, holding company invested in insurance, Geico. Never heard of that little Australian-accented, what is it? Gecko, that's it. Yeah, well, of course, Geico, Gecko. How can I figure that out? Geico, General Re, Jewelry, Borsheim's, Utilities, Mid-American Energy, and Food, Dairy Queen and Seize Candies. Every time you eat an ice cream cone that's dipped from Dairy Queen, you're helping out Warren Buffett. Estimated net worth today. Today, let's put his picture back up. Estimated net worth today, $62 billion. Wow. I want to give you some advice. If Warren Buffett should call you this next week, now I'm serious. If he should call you this next week and he says over the phone from Omaha, Nebraska, I've heard about you and I want to become friends with you. I'd love to go into partnership with you. I am willing to put my $62 billion on the line for your success. Would you be willing, he asks on the phone, would you be willing for me to do just that? I want to give you a little bit of pastoral counsel. I'm not the brightest crayon in the box, but let me tell you that if he ever asks you, just say yes. Please. If Warren Buffett wants to be your friend, just say yes. But you know what? I've got an even better deal for you right now. Open your Bible with me, please, to Genesis chapter 28, the book of beginnings, Genesis 28. A story, a perfect story for a generation in a time of economic crisis. Nobody said the crisis is over. Prognosticators are saying this could get worse before it gets better. 
A story for the penniless and the hopeless. That may be what you feel like today. The perfect story for anybody whose life is melting down right now. Open your Bible with me, please, to Genesis chapter 28. I'm going to be today in the Today's New International Version. You did, if you didn't bring a Bible, you've got, you got to follow this story. It's a great story. Grab the Pew Bible in front of you. The page number in the Pew Bible would be page 19. Genesis 28. Let's dive in this together. Those of you watching on television right now, find that Bible. Read the story. We'll put, the, we'll put it on the screen for you as well. Here we go. Genesis 28, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. And when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Now, I've got to tell you that just reading this out of the blue, it feels like, you know, this, this guy Jacob, whoever he is, is on some sort of day trip. It turns into an overnighter. He's stopping for rest. But you need to know that if we could take Jacob's heart rate right now in this story, he is in tachycardia. Let me read to you a little bit of background behind this moment from that classic on the Old Testament, uh, Patriarchs, and, Patriarchs and Prophets. So here's the background so you, get the, so you can know why the heart rate is so high. Threatened by death, threatened with death by the wrath of Esau. That would be his brother, born just ahead of him. They're twins, but Esau came out first. Threatened with death by the wrath of his brother Esau. You see, he tricked Esau, pulled the wool over his daddy's eyes, and stole the birthright and the paternal blessing. Got them both. And Esau has vowed, and Mama heard about it, Esau has vowed, I'm going to kill that boy. As soon as Daddy dies, Jacob is gone. Adios. So he's running for his life. He's on the lamb. Threatened with death by the wrath of Esau, Jacob went, Jacob went out from his father's home a fugitive with a deeply troubled heart. He set out on his lonely journey. Now listen up. With only his staff in his hand, he must travel hundreds of miles through a country inhabited by wild roving tribes. In his remorse and timidity, he sought to avoid men lest he should be traced by his angry brother. He feared that he had lost forever the blessing God had purposed to give to him. And Satan was at hand to press his temptations upon him. The guy is getting it from every direction and his heart rate is tachycardia. The evening of the second day found Jacob far away from his father's tents. He felt that he was an outcast. He knew that all this trouble had been brought upon him by his own wrong course. Now, the darkness of despair pressed upon his soul and he hardly dared to pray. I want to stop right there because every one of us knows what it's like to come to that place in life when you're feeling so guilty. You are so overcome by your own actions that you hardly dare to pray. I need to tell you, with all the authority I can muster, that whenever you come to those moments, and we all do, that is a sure sign you must immediately begin to pray. When you feel you can't pray because of what you've done, it is the moment God is saying, pray to me, boy, pray to me, girl. I need to hear from you right now. Don't you ever let the devil say, well, you're too, you're too bad. I go. He hardly dared to pray. But he was so utterly lonely that he felt the need of protection from God as he had never felt it before. With weeping and deep humiliation, he confessed his sin to God. And he entreated for some evidence that he was not utterly forsaken. Still, his burdened heart found no relief. He had lost all confidence in himself and he feared that the God of his fathers had cast him off. That's why his heart rate is so high tonight. Now, the story goes on. Let's pick it up right there. Verse 11 again. When Jacob reached a certain place out in the barren wilderness, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. 
taking one of the stones there. He put it under his head and he lay down to sleep. Verse 12, he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth. Now, the New King James reads ladder. Something is down here. Stairway ladder. It's resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And at the top of the stairway, there above it stood the Lord. By the way, I need to tell you this, that when that Lord of the dream eventually would come to earth, He would turn to His disciples one day in John 1. He said, hey guys, I want to tell you something. I am that stairway. From henceforth, you will see angels ascending and descending upon me, the ladder between heaven and earth. I am your staircase to heaven. Well, that's good to know. You're not disconnected. You're not all alone on this planet in this crisis you're going through now. You're not all alone. I am the stairway. And there above it stood the Lord. And He said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you were lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And all peoples of earth will be blessed through you and your offering. Time out, God. Hold it, hold it, hold it. Great dream. You just got the wrong dreamer here. <laughs> you don't mean that. You don't mean that you're going you're to bless the human race through this guy whose name, he lived up to his name. They named him the supplanter. Esau came out first and Jacob was hanging on to Esau's heels. I'm always after you. I'm always... You're not going to name, you're not going to promise this guy who's a cheat, a liar, a crook. You're not going to bless the whole earth through him. You know our problem, don't you? Our problem is, we who think we are saints, our problem is that we think God only does business with saints. But come to find out, God cuts transactions with anybody who, who will give Him the time. And He particularly specializes in sinners. So if you're feeling like a sinner today, i got good news for you. There was a cheat named Jacob once. Lied as much as you did on those reading reports. Lied as much as you did on that exam. Lied as much as you did. And God said, I want to do business with you, boy. Girl, give me another shot at your life. Hallelujah. Right dream, right dreamer. It's a sinner. That's who I'm talking to, God said. Verse 14. We read that, didn't we? All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Now, verse 15. I am with you. Look at this. this is, he's making this promise to a sinner. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. It's a sinner who's turned to him and said, you've got to help me, God. I'm, I've so messed up my life. There is no way out of this hole unless you do something. He's making the promise to a sinner who has turned back to him. That's the deal. He can't make the promise to a sinner who doesn't turn to him. Well, how can I help you? You don't want me to help you. But if you want me, sinner, if you want me, I'm there for you. Just like that. I, how he put it here? Verse 15, I am with you and I will watch over you and wherever you go. I'm going to bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. Goodbye. And when Jacob, verse 16, awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely, surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. And he was afraid. And he said, how awesome, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. You know, I got to thinking when I was studying this story this week, I got to thinking what would happen if you and I, every time we came into this church on this campus as worshipers, we thought those words first, whether it was to chapel or to church on Sabbath. What if we thought, wow, 
How awesome is this? This is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. I have a feeling what you and I do in this house while we're with God would be affected by that little confession as we come through the door. I know it's Thursday and I know it's chapel, but this is God's house. This is God's house. It'd make a difference, wouldn't it? If I would always remember when I stepped up here. This is God's house. He's here. Early the next morning, because that was in the middle of the night when Jacob awoke after the dream. So he's waiting now till the just the first purple blushes of the dawn on the eastern horizon. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and he set it up. His pillow became a pillar and he poured oil on top of it. He consecrated it to God. Verse 19. And he called that place Beth-El, house of El, house of God, though the city used to be called Luz. Verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow. This is the first time in the Bible it's, a human is described doing this. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And you know what? I have read this so long as a quid pro quo. That's Latin for this for that. I've read, okay, Jacob is saying, kind of a crafty guy. I'm cutting a deal with you. You give me food. You keep me clothed. You bring me back. Then I'll worship you. Ladies and gentlemen, that's hum- that, that is utterly illogical. You know why? I just found this out this last week. You know why? Because he's already got the assurance from God, I am with you. And he woke up his heart bursting with gratitude. This isn't cutting a deal like, I, I want to know if you're going to be with me. This is now a prayer. Oh God, because you have promised to clothe me and feed me and bring me back to this land, I want to do this for you. That's what's really happening here. And what is it he wants to do for God? Verse 27, so that if I return safely to my father's house, then, Lord, the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And all that all of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. End of story. What's going on here? Simple. You got a sinner on the run who has been overwhelmed by the divine assurance of mercy and forgiveness, I'm going to start over with you. I'm going to start way over with you. And he is so grateful. He says, here's the deal. Everything you give me for the rest of my life, you get the first tenth. You get it. I'm giving it to you. That's what's going on. Apparently, ladies and gentlemen, it's okay to allow a crisis to forge a new compact between you and God. That point is so critical. We're going to write it down right now. Let's do it. Just grab that study guide. Is there a study guide in your worship bulletin? Pull that study guide out. You didn't get a study guide? You're going to want this one. It's a very practical one. Hold your hand up if you didn't get the study guide. Our friendly ushers are coming your way all the way up to the back in the overflow as well. Make sure everybody today gets a study guide. And those of you watching on TV, we are so glad to have you. I want you to have the same study guide. This is a dynamite teaching. Follow along with us. Let me put the website on the screen for you where you can get the study guide. You see it there? At the very bottom of that screen, can you see www.pmchurch.tv? That's the website you're looking for. It's our website. You're looking for a series, by the way, that ends next week. Title of the series that you're looking for, Four Secrets to Surviving the Coming Economic Earthquake. We've already had secret one. We've had secret two. Today is secret three. Title of today's secret, Go Over the Head of Warren Buffett. And oh boy, don't you miss secret number four next weekend. Surviving, no, thriving, 
thriving in the midst of the crisis. Not surviving, thriving. We wrap it up next week. Come back for that, please. But fill, up, fill out the first line on your study guide. Let's, let's put it on the screen, please. The very first line of your study guide. Apparently, it's okay to allow an economic crisis to forge a new compact between you and God. Just jot that down. And I tell you, the reason that's so important is because some people are afraid that turning crises into compacts might turn God into... It might turn God away from a questionable motivation. I mean, come on. Why am I turning to God in a crisis? And He's going to say, well, you never loved me when it was... You're, you're a fair-weather friend. Only when it's raining do you come around. No. You know what, my friends? The only thing worse than turning to God in a crisis, the only thing worse is not turning to God in a crisis. That's what crises are for. In fact, will you jot it down, please? Every crisis is a call for a renewed compact with God. It's that way in marriages. Marriages go through storms. Trust me, they go through storms. Every marriage does. Now, a storm is either going to make your marriage stronger or it's going to make your marriage weaker. You can't ride a storm out and come out the same at the other end. No. Every crisis produces change. That's why God allows crises. So why would it be any different in an economic crisis? Which, by the way, is why God allows crises to come to His children. Because a crisis... Crises can't, if we allow them, draw us deeper. Now look, it's a, huge, it's a huge risk for God because the crisis that draws you closer to Him can be the crisis that drives me away from Him. And so God, God has to calculate this. Wait a minute, wait a minute. She's doing fine. He's not. He, it is a calculated risk. It may drive you further away. But that's why in every crisis, would you jot this down please? Just like it was with Jacob, in the midst of a crisis, God draws especially near to us. He's not leaving you hanging. He's not farther away in a crisis. It's the other way around. Just like it was with Jacob. I got the ladder where you are, boy. I'm coming down that ladder right to where you're sleeping now. He's always closer in a crisis so that he can tilt the risk in his favor. He wants to win. He wants you to win. He don't want you to lose. So that's what happens. Look, look, look at, uh, let's read verse 20 again. Then Jacob made a vow when he woke up the next day, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, dear God, I will give you a tenth. You get a tenth. Everything you give to me, I will give you a tenth. Jot this down. As a recognition of God as his Savior and sustainer, Jacob offers back to God one-tenth of his income. One-tenth. The Bible calls it, jot it down, the Bible calls it tithe. In reality, this is not new with Jacob. He didn't come up with this. I think I'm going to come up with this idea. Are you kidding? He learned it from his grandfather Abraham. Let me show you. Two very different motivations for giving tithe, by the way. Take, just go back a few pages to uh, Genesis 14. Because Grandpa Abraham really is the one that taught Jacob about this. Go back to uh, Genesis 14. Drop down there to verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. We've got some worship going on now. Like a communion service. He brought out bread and wine. 
And he was a priest. This Melchizedek was a priest of God Most High. And he, the priest, blessed Abraham, known then as Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, Creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And now, as a response, watch this, then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, the King James calls it, then Abraham gave him, Abram gave him a tithe. But notice how very different are the motivations. So it came from Abraham, but Grandpa Abraham and, and Grandson Jacob, very different motivations. Jot this down, will you? Abraham returned tithe as a grateful act of worship before God, whereas Jacob gave it as a grateful act of partnership with God. But keep your pen moving. Clearly, both motivations are acceptable to God. He'll take it either way. You want to make it a partnership deal? Let's do it. You want to make it a worship response? Let's do it. He'll take either one of them. After all, that's what the wisest and richest man in the history of earth... Sorry, Warren Buffett. We got one richer than you. King Solomon. That's the lesson King Solomon learned. Take a look at this proverb. Proverbs, Proverbs 3. Proverbs 3. Proverbs 3, these Proverbs collected from the wisest man who ever lived. King Solomon. Proverbs 3. He's making the very same point. What's the page number in the Pew Bible? Page number is 429. Proverbs 3. Oh, this is good. So you got Abraham and Jacob in these two little Proverbs. That's one proverb split in half. And Abraham will be in the first half and Jacob will be in the second half. You watch this. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth. Some of you are saying, oh, that's not me. Because I have no wealth. Hey, hold on, hold on, hold on. In the the New King James, it reads possessions. Don't you come and tell me you have no possessions. An iPod is a possession. A laptop is a possession. You have many possessions. Yeah, you're not wealthy. I understand that. Neither am I. But we have possessions. Honor. How's it go here? Verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops. So any money coming in, you give them the first skim. Just give them the first little skim. Honor him with the first fruits of your crops. Now, that's Abraham. Now, here comes Jacob. Verse 10. Then your barns will be filled overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. Watch this. Write it down, please. Two lines powerfully depict the, the, the very different motivations for Abraham and Jacob. Proverbs 3.9, jot it down, describes the human response of gratitude for divine blessings. That's Abraham. He just comes back and says, I want to give this to you, God. I am so grateful. In worship. The human response of gratitude. But Proverbs 3.10 describes the human request in gratitude for more. I want more. I want more. The more you give me, the more I'll give back to you. Jacob has nothing. He's penniless. He wants more. He needs more. Two very different responses. But remember, both motivations are acceptable to our divine parent. Hallelujah. And we know that. For sure, because God cannot get any clearer than this. This is the clear. This is it. So go to the last page of your Old Testament. The very last page of your Old Testament. Malachi. Malachi chapter 3. We'll land our plane right here. Malachi chapter 3. Verse 8. Malachi 3. What page number is it in the Pew Bible? 645. Malachi 3 verse 8. God is speaking now. God is speaking, and he, he asks the question, Will a mere mortal rob God? Question mark. Yet you, God says 
to Israel, yet you rob me. Now hit the pause button right there. What does it mean to rob someone? What does it mean? Hey, I could not believe my ears this week. True story. I'm listening to CBS radio, and they're giving a story about a woman down in Florida. What uh, town is she from? Boynton Beach, Florida. This woman's at work, and I heard the 911 tape, so I know. Okay, this woman's at work. You see, her house was robbed some time ago, and so she put, right up there in the corner, she put a little webcam right up there so that it could take a picture of everything happening in her house. So she's at work this last week, and she said, I'm going, I'm going to see how it is in my house. Boom, there it is. And while she's watching her house, one stranger goes by, another stranger, two men, true story, are ripping off her house while she's watching on the computer screen at work. She dials 911, and she says, you got to help me. And they played her tapes back. She is desperate. She says, they are stealing everything I have. There goes my, there goes my uh, DVD. There goes my Wii. There goes... And the little appliances were all going under these guys' arms. One of the guys had the temerity to go to her refrigerator and pull out a bag of cheese. And he's going through her house, ripping her off, eating her cheese. <laughs> the other guy sees the camera up there and he goes up near it like this. And he kind of... She says, you've got to help me. They're still in the house. Oh, and by the way, through the images every now and then, went her, wa- went, went her watchdog wagging his tail the whole time. <laughs> I'd get rid of that dog immediately. She says, you've got to help me. You've got to help me. And, and it's really something. The, the uh, dispatcher said, ma'am, ma'am, calm down, calm down, ma'am. Ma'am, we got the police on the way. Eighteen police arrived with, with guns drawn and surrounded that house. Can you imagine the look on the burgers when they walked out? What does it mean to steal? What does it mean to rob? It means to take something that belongs to somebody else and appropriate it for yourself. That's what it means. And that's what God is saying. Verse 8 again, Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. Oh, you ask, how are we robbing you? Ah, in tithes and offerings. So, oh, come on, come on. How can we rob God, please? Ah, oh, simple. We take what doesn't belong to us, what belongs to somebody else, and we appropriate it to ourselves. How much, how much belongs to God? Let's just, let's just do a real quick check. From Scripture, how much belongs to God? You keep your finger, fingers moving here because we're going to fly through these. Haggai 2.8. God is speaking. The silver is mine and the gold is mine. So that means all the money on earth belongs to God. All right? Sorry, Warren Buffett. It all belongs to God. You got it from Him. Yes, you did. Okay, Haggai 2.8. The silver is mine and the gold is mine. Psalm 50, verse 10. Jot it down. God is speaking. For the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. And incidentally, from the last reports we've gotten, the hills under the cattle are also God's. Psalm 24, verse 1, jot it down. The earth, here it is, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. I'm telling you, Maltby Babcock got it right. This is my Father's world. It's all His. That old spiritual things, He got the whole world. In his hands. Ladies and gentlemen, it's all his. Come on. That is not fair. If God has everything, I got nothing. That's not what the Bible is teaching. 
In fact, when God creates this planet in the beginning, He takes Adam and Eve aside and He says, Hey guys, this is all yours. Can you believe that? Well, you know, He says, technically it's mine because I made it. But I'm giving it to you and I want you, please, to manage this for me. In fact, jot this down in your, in your study guide. Genesis 2.15 the Lord God took the man, and by the way, that's a generic human race. He takes this human race, and He puts them in the Garden of Eden to work it, and to take care of it. Take care of it. When you care... By the way, this is a great green reminder on the eve of a week that, begin, that brings Earth Day to us. Human beings have been put on this planet to take care of the planet. When you take care of someone else's property, jot this down. You aren't an owner, but I got good news for you. You're not a robber either. You know what you are? You are a steward or a manager. Jot that down. That's who you are. You are a steward. You are a manager. And by the way, that is not a demeaning term or a belittling notion. (laughs) That, That is a high honor. You think about it. When you were a kid growing up, how much did you own? Tell me the truth. When you were a kid growing up, how much did you own? Zero, nada, nothing. Every gift you gave to your dad, you got it from your dad in the first place. He acted like it was something from you. It was from him. But you know what? You owned not a single thing as a kid growing up, but you were as happy as a lark because you have nothing to worry about. Somebody else, my daddy's got all the worries. My daddy's in control. My daddy will take care of everything. And you went through life just hunky-dory the whole time. Not a worry through your childhood. You only started worrying when you became a teenager. And then it's all downhill from there. <laughs> That's the point, ladies and gentlemen. To keep fresh in our, Mary, uh, in our memory this, this, this parent-child relationship, this owner-steward-manager paradigm, to keep that fresh in our minds. God's the one that invented it. Abraham didn't invent it. God invented Hey. I'm going to take one-tenth off the top. By the way, don't get all bent out of shape. All ten-tenths belong to me. But I'll take a tenth. I don't need your nickels and dimes, for Pete's sake. I got it all. But when you return these nickels and dimes to me, you are saying to me, God, you are the one that worries. I'm the one that lives. And I'm hiring you to work for me. And God says, cha-ching! That's exactly what I want. Jot it down, will you? God designed the tithe to be a sign of our compact with Him. He is our CFO. Oh, by the way, what's CFO mean? Chief Financial Officer. He is our C... That's the one that makes all the ultimate money decisions. He is our CFO and we are His administrative assistants. Now, keep that pen going because this gets even better. When we return His one-tenth, okay? We return His because it belongs to Him. When we return His one-tenth back to Him, we recognize His ten-tenths ownership of us and His 100% partnership with us. So here's the Bible's great formula for getting out of debt and staying out of debt. Here it is. God's ownership plus my stewardship equals our Partnership. We're in this to the max together. 
And because we're partners, oh boy, hold on to your pew right now. Look how our divine CFO comes through. You're not going to believe this, but He really is promising this. This is verse 10. God says, bring the whole tithe. Bring that one-tenth. Come on, don't give me, don't give me tithe light. 9%. You give me tithe 10%. God says, you bring that tithe to me. You bring it into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And then, I love this, test me. The uh, New King James says, you try me. Just try me. Try me. Try me. Try me. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see, if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven. I love that. Throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing, there will not be room enough to store it. Hallelujah. Mercy. Wow. You ever see the game show Deal or No Deal? (laughs) Who comes up with these things? They obviously haven't been to college. Or maybe they've been to college and it sure gets everybody watching. But anyway, you know this Deal or No Deal? Got a chance to get a million dollars. And there is this guy up in the sky behind this smoke glass. You can only see his silhouette. You never see his face. I'll deal with you. I'll make a deal. You're not going to get that million. I'm going to offer you this to bow out right now. God says, I'm better than that guy. It's my money anyway. I'm not trying to take the money away from you. But here's the deal. I need to know. From my, my vantage point up in the sky, I need to know if you're willing to trust me, put everything you have in my hands. I'm not going to necessarily make you another Warren Buffett. Although there have been men and women who have become exceedingly wealthy, read Abraham, who have trusted God. But I'm not necessarily going to make you another Warren Buffett. But here's my deal with you. I, who am richer than Warren Buffett, will be your CFO 24-7 night and day. And anytime you need anything, you ask me, are you in debt right now? I'm going to get you out of debt, God says. I'm going to get you out of debt. I know this doesn't make sense because you'll have less to work with, but you've got to trust me. I'm going to get you out of debt. I just need to know. Deal or no deal. You're going to trust me or not? That's the deal. Will you trust me? What a God. He said, hey, hey, by the way, let me tell you how I took care of my kids when they were going through the wilderness. Forty years on, that hot, on those hot desert sands. Jot this down in your study guide. Here's what I did with these people who tithed with me. Deuteronomy 29.5 During the forty years, your clothes did not wear out, nor did your sandals. Apparently, the CFO of the universe can make rubber stay on the heels of our shoes. And if he could do it on the heels of our shoes, he could probably do it on the tires of our cars. Keep those tires going. I know it says 60000 but I'm giving you 80000 Now, I don't know how he's going to do it with you. Let's not trivialize this, but you understand what I'm saying. I'll take care of you. I will take care of you. I did for my friends before. And by the way, my friend David, he says, listen to this. And David spoke these words, Psalm 37, 25. David wrote them. Jot it down. David says, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children baking bread. Some of you right now have children and you're going through this economic crisis with children. And you're saying to yourself, how will I ever make it through this crisis? God can't take care of my kids plus me. What am I going to do? And God is saying... I will take care of you. 
I will take care of you. You're going to have to trust your kids, Mama. You're going to have to trust your kids to God. You're going to have to ask God to manage their lives as well. Papa, I'll take care of you. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm telling you what. You're not going to find anywhere in Scripture a deal better than this one. This is it. So God says, try me. Test me. Prove me. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour you out such a blessing. You, I'm going to bring you through this debt. I'm going to bring you to economic security. I'm going to bring you to financial salvation one day if you trust me. You've got to trust me. You've got to trust me. Let me read it again. Oh, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Write it down, please. There it is. Secret number three. Go over the head of Warren Buffett and enlist God as your CFO by returning His one-tenth back to Him. That's it. Secret number three. It's as simple as that. Return His one-tenth Back to Him. But you're saying, Pastor, Pastor, time out. Pastor, I can't. I can't. I am so far in debt now, I cannot afford to return to God His tithe and His offerings. I cannot afford to. My dear friend, you cannot afford not to. You can't afford not to. I'm being honest with you. Could it be that you're in debt today? Because you haven't learned secret number three? Haven't learned that by a little budgeting, some hard work, that you can actually live on the nine-tenths better than you've been doing with the ten-tenths? Haven't learned that yet. You say, oh, Dwight, you don't know how, debt, uh, how deep my debt is. Hey, i got some good news for you. I want to remind you, last time I can do this, this Thursday, Michiana, this Thursday... 8 o'clock right here, right here, both big screens, live with my friend Dave Ramsey. Put it on the screen, please. His Town Hall for Hope, across the nation, live. We'll be gathering right here, and I hope you'll come. Practical counsel for this economic crisis we're in. 8 o'clock. Don't come here at 8 o'clock, because we'll be rolling at 8. You're going to have to come here quarter to 8. Come here. Get a seat. Quarter to 8. We got the man. The man is a gifted counselor. Now, look it. He's not going to be pushing what I'm pushing right here. But I still want you to find help. God wants you to find help. There's a way to get out of this. But it starts. You say, I can't. I can't, Dwight. I can't afford tithes and offerings. You can't afford not to. Could it be that the unselfish act of generosity toward God in giving offerings when you feel you can't afford to give a gift is the very spiritual catalyst your life has been needing to set you free from your self-centered worries and anxieties. You've got to get off of it. You've got to get off of that horse. Get off of that pony because you've ridden that one to death. Poor me. Poor me. Poor me. We know it's a crisis. It's a crisis for all. But you've got to get off of that. Could it be that cutting God in right at the beginning is an antidote Speaking of giving, listen to this. You have it in the study guide. Ed Gunger in his book, Religiously Transmitted Diseases. I like that title. <laughs> he, may, he makes his point well. It's in your study guide. You're going to have to fill in the words. Here we go. Giving. This is good. Giving. Touches a nerve in us that nothing else does. We look a lot like God when we do it. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave. 
We look like God when we give. When you give, keep going. Write that in. When you give, you defy the fear that you won't have enough. You insult greed. The impulse to acquire or possess more than one needs or deserves. If you really believe that God owns it all and that He is your source and provider, giving will be a simple matter. Keep writing. The arena of giving is the only place where exactly what's going on in your heart is revealed. There's no other way for the universe to know what's happening in that guy's heart. The only way to find out is check his giving record. That's the, what's happening in that lady's heart. Check her giving record. The giving record tells the truth about what's happening inside. If you're not given, you've got a heart problem. Sure, it's a selfishness issue. If you can't give, you say, well, what if I'm poor as a widow? If you're poor as a widow. Oh, if you're poor as a widow. Now he goes on here. The arena of giving is the only place where exactly what's going on in your heart is revealed. According to Jesus, keep writing, giving keeps your heart in motion toward God. I like that. And away from material things. One more sentence. Your heart will follow the direction of your giving. Your heart will follow the direction of your giving. You know what? You come to think of it. See, see if this isn't true. If we don't give, it's not because we can't afford to. It's because we don't trust His promises to take care of us when we do. It's not because we can't afford it. You can. You can give. You can give. It's His antidote. I had a student, one of my student friends here at the university. He said, Pastor, I've got to tell you this. I had $40 in my wallet. $40 eating a hole in my wallet. I want, to get, I want to get some clothes. I needed clothes bad. So he said, I got off campus. I got off campus and I bumped into a homeless man. And I knew that I had to share something with him, and so I gave him some money. Now, this is a true story. So he gives this homeless man off campus some money. He goes down to the village gas station to get gas, and a woman and her little child come walking up to him, and they said, Sir, we need some money. He reached into his wallet and gave the balance of that $40 to that woman and that little child. And he said, You know what, Pastor? It's kind of crazy. But after giving it, This passion to have what I just had to have, it just dissipated. It just just went away. You know, it makes you wonder, maybe if we gave more, we'd be contented with less. Maybe that's what it's all about. Maybe that's why Jesus, the one theme Jesus spent more time on than any other theme in the Gospels is giving. Because he knows it's the true story of what's in your heart right now. If you don't give, you don't trust. You don't trust me. He says, I just want to know, what are you giving these days? Wow. God says, okay. Try me. Secret number three. Three steps for secret number three, and then I'm sitting down. Jot these down. Three simple steps that you can take to make secret number three work in your life. Let's go. Secret number three, step number one, jot it down, please. Always set aside God's one-tenth whenever you, you receive money. Just jot that down. Come on. That's the point here from Jacob and Abraham and Jesus. Always set aside God's one-tenth whenever you receive money. Grandma sends you birthday money, one-tenth. Government sends you a tax refund, one-tenth. None of this quibbling. Well, see, if I already tied this... Forget it. One-tenth. 
You say, hey, but wait a minute, Dwight. What about my unemployment check? Well, why not? Don't you need God as your CFO 24-7, especially when you're unemployed? One-tenth. Alright, that's number one. Number two, three little, three little ways to make secret number three come to life. Number two, incrementally work up another one-tenth for God as He blesses you. The Bible calls these offerings. The tithe, boom, goes right back to Him. Nobody argues over that. But He says, now as I bless you, I want you to start giving. You bump into a homeless man, you give. You bump into somebody who's in need, you give. You help out your church, help out your whatever organization, you help, you give. It's an antidote to selfishness. And little, little point number three under secret number three, let every gift you give be the compact between you and God to live ten-tenths for the other. You each live 100% for the other. I tell you what, you can go through anything in this life if you will live 100% for God because trust me, He's living 100% for you. Let me end with a story. Once upon a time, there was a little widow who came to church and gave an offering to God. Unbeknown to her, Jesus and His disciples were in that church that very day. And when she tried to sneak her little offering into the offering plate, Jesus was blown out of the water when He spotted her. And He said in a stage whisper that everybody in the back section of the church could hear, Wow, guys, did you see that? This little woman has just given more than all the wealthy in this church combined today because they gave, they gave out of their abundance and she out of her poverty gave everything she had. You see, ladies and gentlemen, that's the truth. With God, it's not what you give that counts. It's what you have left over that matters. Once upon a time, there was a God who gave everything He had to the human race so that there was nothing left over. I want you to read this text on the screen out loud with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Read it out loud with me. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you, through His poverty, might become rich. Nothing left over. God loved you that much. Nothing, nada, left over. It's all yours. I give it all to you. Ladies and gentlemen, if the God of Jacob, who became the Savior of the world, gave everything with nothing left over, here's the question. Now, you give me the answer on this one. Here's the question for you. Can you not then trust Him to take care of you when you give back to Him? Can't you? Of course you can. You can. Yes, you can. Yes, we can.